in World War II, London, or generally in, in Britain, uh, people have an idea that criminals played along in the war and that they, they, they cut down their activities and, and tried to contribute to the war effort, which is nothing could be further from the truth because crime boomed in World War II, specifically World War II London, and in England and Wales between 1939 and 45, crime grew by 60%. Hello and welcome to the Aspects of History podcast. My name's Oliver Webb Carter and I'm the editor and your host. Now this week I've got a slight change of format. First up we'll be hearing from Mark Ellis, best-selling novelist and author of a series of crime stories set in World War II London. Now many of us think of London and indeed Britain joined together in a rather touching period of unity against the common foe. That throughout the war criminals ceased their activities put down their sacks labelled swag and linked arms with policemen to help the home front. And it was a time of milk and honey for all. Well, of course, things aren't quite that simple. And so Mark and I chat about what life was like during this time. In this amendment of format, I've moved on to a new section I've introduced and which I might repeat in a future episode. And that's my top 10 of historical films. Now, this is very much my pick, and after my chat with Mark, I'll give you my ground rules and rundown of why I picked each one. As ever, please subscribe, and if you can, leave a review or rating. You can get hold of Mark and myself on the Twitter. Links are in the show notes. I hope you enjoy. Mark Ellis, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you on. And we're here to talk about, um, well, we're going to talk about your new novel, but really, you know, you're obviously we can't discuss the plot too much because that would give away spoilers and things like that. But we're here to talk about crime in London during the Second World War. Um, But we'll start off, if you could just give a brief um bit of background about your, your latest uh, novel the hero detective chief inspector merlin um that would be fantastic um because i've just started okay. reading one this morning and it, it's a it's a it's a great thrill so um uh, i'm sure my listeners will be interested great thanks thanks olin uh, thank you for having me it's a great pleasure um so I've been writing these books for about, uh, well, I, I t- took up writing uh, when I um, ended my business career um, in the early 2000s. And um, I focused on, uh, I had a few ideas about what to write about, but eventually I picked on uh, World War II and I wanted to write crime fiction. So I created uh, Detective Chief Inspector Frank Merlin, um, who's a Scotland Yard detective operating in World War II. Um, he has a slightly exotic background in that he's half, half Spanish. His original or his birth name was Francisco Marino. And um, he is the son of a um, Spanish uh, merchant seaman who ended up in London and married a local company girl. And they had three children, of, of which he was the eldest. And um, he fought in, the, in World War One. 
and then started his police career. Um, and um, as of uh, 1940, when the first book is, is set, um, he's the chief, chief, inspe chief inspector, as he is in all the books so far. And um, he's um, a uh, pretty much standard, good-looking, dark, dark-haired hero. He has a few quirky interests. He's uh, interested, very keen on poetry. Um, he um, he speaks Spanish just about, um, but the only way it really features in the books is that when he gets irritated, he might swear in Spanish. Um, he um, has a bunch of sidekicks. He has his sergeant. He has um, a couple of constables. Um, he reports to an irascible, not rather irritating um, assistant commissioner in the police force. Um, and he effectively gets on with solving crimes in uh, World War II. I should mention that in the first book, he tries to get um, permission to enlist, but he's told he's too old and he's far too much, far too important to the other battle of World War II, which is the battle against crime. Um, so uh, in World War II, London, or generally in, in Britain, uh, people have an idea that the criminals played along in the war and that they, they, they cut down their activities and, and tried to contribute to the war effort, which is nothing could be further from the truth, because crime boomed in World War II, uh, specifically World War II London, and in England and Wales between 1939 and 1945, crime grew by 60%. And if you think about it, the, the reasons why that might be um, first of all, you had the blackout, and that made life easier for criminals. Secondly, you had rationing, which made uh, created huge opportunities for black market trade. Uh, thirdly, um, although Merlin didn't, wasn't able to, to join up, a lot of other policemen did join up. So there was a shortage of, of uh, experienced uh, police officers. Um, they did recruit quite a lot of uh, reserve part-time policemen, but the calibre of the sort of people they, they recruited might be evidenced by the fact that one of them was the infamous John Christie. Um, the, uh, the murderer, John Christie, uh, was a reserve policeman. Um, in, in any event... I, I've heard of John Christie, but I don't, I don't think some of our listeners have. You couldn't just... Um, there's, there's, a very, there's, a, there's a quite well-known film which features him called Ten Rillington Place, in which Richard Atten replaced him. He was a, just a particularly nasty murderer uh, and um, murdered women. There, there were a few serial murderers in, in the war, uh, but, but he was the only one who became a policeman. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, uh, so and also another thing that was the case during the war is that there were gangs. There were a whole bunch of gangs operating in London. Um, there were straightforward uh, criminal gangs. This was too early for the craze, of course, but uh, there was a gang uh, run by the probably the biggest gang. Uh, it was run by a guy called Billy Hill, who was something of a mentor to the craze in, in later life. Um, and he also had uh, quite a lot of advice uh, in World War II London. Obviously, if you think about it, especially as the war goes on, by 1944 there were there were like million there were millions of American soldiers over here, millions of 
British soldiers in uniform. And so um, when they piled into London on a Friday night or a Saturday night, they were looking for some action. And so there were gangs who provided that action, all of nightclubs and brothels and so on. And um, interestingly, uh, the biggest gangs or the most important people in the vice business were um, Maltese criminals. Um, and um, the, 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 so they, they sort of dominated that particular market. Um, so that's a sort of brief history of, of the criminal criminality in London and what, what sort of opportunities Merlin has to get involved in solving crimes. It's funny that um, the the crimes that are, are taking place, because one, like you said at the start, one does assume that the whole population is, you know, blitz spirit. Everyone's sort of linking arms to um, to team together and 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 the home front being one sort of big, happy, happy front. But yes, that 60 percent increase in crime at home is just staggering. Um I, I I was reading I, I was doing a little bit of research before we um before we came on and was reading that also uh, in addition prisons were opened uh, um prisoners were released if they had less than three months to serve in yeah. in jail which I guess I assume that was to have a lot of people join up uh, join the army but presu- yeah. presumably not all of those criminals would end up um in the army no indeed and the Yes, they were meant to be being good boys and joining up, but they didn't necessarily. And there is one good, very good story about this, um, the, the general opportunities for criminals in the war. I don't know if you've ever heard of someone called Mad Frankie Fraser. He yes, I a, have. He was a, wasn't he a, an enforcer for the craze? No, he was actually an enforcer for the Richardsons, who were the, other, were the, the, the sort of against the craze. The, the South London. The Richardsons were South he, London, weren't they? Exactly, exactly. And um, in, in his late, late stages of his life, he became something of a TV uh, star. He, you know, someone goes for it, just wrote uh, um, a biography, an autobiography, and he would feature on a specific, I'm thinking of an occasion when I think he was on Wogan, and they were talking about the war. And he said, um, yeah, that uh, expletive deleted Hitler. Why did he give in so early? We were having such a great time. <laughs> so, so yes, I mean, you know, the 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 the, the, the great thing, of course, is, is uh, I'm writing books about this particular period. Is that just so many opportunities of characters and crimes that went on uh, that, that I can exploit. Yeah. So, is Merlin? Um, were, were there any sort of uh, de- detectives that you've based Merlin on? I.e., you know, talented policemen that like 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 Merlin is a little bit too old to serve but is that a, but is a but is a very talented detective no I haven't, I haven't I can't say I've based him on anyone in particular I mean I, there would have been some good detectives you know rolling around in the war and um, there would have been some bad good detectives too because there was some corruption in, in the Metropolitan Police Force then and um, I'm not going to say now but I mean I, quite recently there has been corruption so um, no, I, I, to be honest, actually, physically, I drew him from my father. Uh, father, in my, in my mind, Merlin looks like my father, or my father looks like Merlin, or whatever. And I suppose I've seen loads of um, films and 
know, in which there are uh, there used to be something called Gideon of the Yard. Do you remember that? Uh, anyway, they're, they're, you know, I've seen lots of old films with um, solid British policemen operating in the 40s and 50s, and I suppose some of that has seeped into Merlin. But he's a sort of relatively unique character to, to me. His, his quirks are quirks that I've given him. Um, and he's got, he's got a sort of, obviously he's got a personal life and um, he's a widower in the first book. I won't say any more. The, the other day I, I sort of explained what happened to his personal life in the, in, up until the last book and someone complained to me that I was spoiling the plot. So I won't go into any more details, but uh, let's say he gets happier. Yeah, I was reading your latest, which... Uh, he seems to have um, had a slightly happier personal life. Um, yeah. One piece, one feature, I suppose, of crime in in London that is appears early on in in your new novel uh, is the fact that um, Americans, when they came over, not only I think there was that famous phrase that they're uh, oversexed and over here, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and my um, my father always remembers he was a, a little boy during the war and remembers the Americans down the end of the road, but they not only brought themselves um, over here, they brought their legal system effectively, didn't they? Yes. And, and to be honest, uh, when I was researching, when I started researching this, this particular book, I hadn't realized that. And I, even, and I'm a lawyer um, or ex-lawyer. I don't actually, I don't think you can ever become an ex-lawyer or a lawyer for life. But even amongst many of my legal friends, they didn't realize this. It's quite a usual fact. So what happened in, in August of uh, 1942? So the Americans started coming, obviously, after Pearl Harbor, which was December 1941. And then they declared war and gradually people started filtering over and what was a stream became a flood. Um, so in uh, August 1942, Sorry, um, in, the, in the summer of 1942, um, on request, the, the British Parliament passed a law saying that uh, the US military authorities would have jurisdiction over any um, legal matter which involved an American soldier. And so what this meant, as is, as happens in Dead in the Water, for example, I don't think I'm revealing too much to say that. Merlin has a case and it's taken off his hands because the suspect is American. And um, they had control over everything, you know, in, in, including uh, executing people. And another aspect of the arrival of the Americans, which, which comes into this book and relates to the legal matter, is, of course, the Americans imported their race relations, which were pretty poor. And I, it's worth remembering that this, this time there were very few people of colour in Great Britain and there wasn't really a race relations problem. Um, uh, I'm sure someone could come up and find some examples, but it wasn't any, anything like what it was in America, obviously. And in the Deep South, uh, the situation was dire. So when black and, and white soldiers came over um, and uh, uh, were mixing socially, lots of American soldiers took, uh, got very angry, for example, to see that there were black soldiers in a pub with them, or black, or even worse, black soldiers in a dance hall dancing with white girls. This was a, a complete anathema, and uh, the, the position never got um, really any better during the war, and such to, to the extent that um, as time went on, in parts of the country, 
and in London, uh, certain pubs, it wasn't so much in London because no one was based centrally in London, but in parts of the country where the troops were actually based, uh, pubs would decide that they were either going to serve white soldiers or black soldiers. There was apartheid, effectively, uh, at that time. Another factor that comes into play in the book is that um, black soldiers were very harshly dealt with by the military, American military courts. And the ratio of convictions and heavy, heavy penalties uh, against black soldiers as, as opposed to white was you know, hugely towards the black soldiers. And um, there are many, many examples of injustices where, where, where black soldiers were treated badly. Or you know, In the case of a rape, for example, the penalty was death. And there, there are cases of black soldiers being executed uh, wrongly uh, for uh, rapes they didn't commit. So again, um, that's all. Um, I, I knew it, but when I actually got into researching it, it was quite surprising the extent of it. You, you mentioned sort of pubs almost appropriating Jim Crow laws in 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 yes in the countryside. Um, because we we uh, we've recently um, published a piece about an uprising in Cornwall um, amongst African African American soldiers against um, their treatment by uh, their white counterparts. I'll put I'll put a link up in the show oh, notes right. yeah. as well. Yeah, yeah it's interesting to see that. Yeah, it's it's a um, it's a side of the war that is really uh, un, un, untapped, I suppose. Um, and you mentioned that they executed their prisoners uh, or their their those soldiers convicted of crimes. Um, would they bring? They presumably wouldn't use British executioners because I'm thinking that you know there's a very famous um, uh, British executioner around at the time. Albert Pierpont. Yes. He features in the book. When you get to the end, Ollie. Okay. Right. <laughs> yes. No. They, they they would use their own executions. And and the Pierpoint Pierpoints um ha, has a a very unusual because we're talking the crimes in in these days you know uh, death the death penalty was removed in the mid 60s wasn't it. Um, so, so crimes were dealt with very harshly in World War II London. Um, do, do you, how do you find um, in your research uh, looking at, I guess, convicted criminals being executed? Was it a sort of fairly regular occurrence? Um, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't say I've actually gone through and seen what the regularity was, but uh, crime used to be dealt with pretty quickly. So there was a there was a um, case in the early 40s, in the early part of the war, there was a serial killer, um, a young um, British airman um, who uh, became known as the, um, uh, well, he, he was the, the something ripper. I can't remember what it was now, but he killed four, five, four or five women. And uh, I think when they actually found him, Trial from child's convention was like a few weeks. Sorry, the blackout ripper got it now. And um, yes, because people and 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 I do actually have a scene in, in the book where um, my English uh, character is discussing with an American the speed of a trial process, and uh, he references 
um, the Civil War, uh, the American Civil War, and say, you know, we're fighting a battle and uh, this is part of the battle. If you've got someone who's done something wrong, you just got to deal with it very quickly and move on. You've got to be focused. So that, I think that was part of the overall uh, atmosphere in the war. I was talking with um, a member of the Metropolitan Police, who shall obviously be, remain nameless, about um, uh, about the fact that I'd be talking to you about crime during um, yeah. the war. And he, he did bring up a name that I actually I, I, I was looking into a little bit, who was Winston Churchill's bodyguard, Walter H. Thompson, oh, yes, yes. who, who was a long-serving too. policeman. He features in the book, too. Um, but uh, he features, yes, um, so uh, uh, there's a scene in the book, and again, I don't think I'm revealing anything uh, toward, in which um, there's a scene in, in Moscow where Churchill went, Churchill went to Moscow in the same time frame as my book, and um, they end up with a huge boozy uh, session in the Kremlin. And um, one of the characters in my book is a, uh, an American detective who featured previously, who um, uh, is a friend of Merlin, and he's been attached to someone on, on, as a security detail uh, to go to Moscow, and he ends up sitting next to next door to Mr. Thompson, and they have a nice chat about um, how Thompson tried to, um, uh, well, about his experiences with Churchill and so on. He, he's a fascinating character. I was reading that he had a breakdown um, and had to leave his role for for some time. Um, I don't know about that, actually. I mean, I mean he, did, he did leave his role and went off to run a greengrocer. But in, in the way I, what I read is that, is that he just got fed up working with Churchill for a while and then, then he got persuaded back. I'll, I'll put a link in um, for, okay. for people to find out more about him. Um, and, and so you mentioned that the police force is a little bit weakened uh, because a lot of the younger officers would have joined the army. Yeah. So, so was 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 the size of the police force much smaller anyway or or was it no, no, uh, just, no, just no, no. older? They, 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 they were older and, and of course there were the reserve policemen like John Christie who were <laughs> involved and um, no, I mean, it, it was just a question of there were less um, experienced officers. Mm. Because then the, uh, and the criminals, you know, the criminals got very clever at running rings around. Well, I, presumably the, the most crimes committed were around the black market and that kind of... There was, there were, there were, there, there, there were standard... Um, robberies and burglaries and, and so on. Um, and that was, Billy Hill was particularly involved in that. Lots of breaking and entering or ramming jewellers' uh, shop fronts with cars and piling in, you know, stuff like that. Bank robberies, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but yes, there were, there were hu- huge amounts of money paid on the black market. You had cigarettes, petrol, clothing, rations, food rations. Um, obviously, cigarettes and petrol and uh, clothing lent themselves more to, um, to black market crime. There were also um, there was a lot of fil- uh, filching in the sense of uh, the military supplies. Obviously, were huge, and there was a lot of uh, quite large-scale theft of army-owned property. Uh, you know, ranging from you know uh, laundry. 
to to uh, warm mowers, or, you know, or anything, anything. Uh, people would pile in and get get those. Uh, and there was so there was corruption on the inside too. There were corrupt military uh, officers, not just uh, at the bottom but at the top, who would participate in that. And, and you know, several of those people paid severe legal penalties during the war, jail for a long time. Um, in terms of other well, other crimes that we've already touched on and, and vice and so on, and and you know murder was a lot easier. Uh, like uh, the uh, Blackout Ripper, he was operating in in a completely dark centre of London, uh, killing women. I was reading that because of the Blitz. Obviously, you know you got about thirty thousand people killed in the Blitz. You got buildings being um, destroyed, and a lot of criminals would use warden. Um, paraphernalia on uh, to to yes. gain entry. Yes, so they yes. would have a little armband that would let them that would uh, I guess nowadays equivalent of a high vis jacket. If you see someone wearing a high vis jacket, it yeah. looks like they they can do what they they like really. Yeah, and, and you know, generally speaking, there was a vast amount of looting during the during the Blitz, which people don't. When I talk to people about it, they they find it hard to believe. But, but it wasn't just people crooks pretending to be wardens, the wardens themselves got involved in looting. Um, and uh, even even firemen, policemen um, were, were convicted of looting. And I think the huge amounts of looting between specifically, particularly in the, in the height of the Blitz between September 1940 and December, I think there were like, uh, I think it was like 40,000 cases, 40,000 cases of looting, thousands of cases of looting. It, it is a mind-boggling increase in in crime. Really, you mentioned that 60% increase during the war. It, it just beggars belief when you do re- think that the country is fighting for its life. Yeah, no, no the, the criminal classes just went on, you know. And other people saw other people who were not necessarily criminals saw opportunities to make money, and they did. It's human. It's it's human nature. <laughs> <laughs> so. Um, you're, you've written this is your fifth novel i think of of merlin is that correct yes that's correct yeah so so do you plan to um carry on having him go through the war um and and continue writing about merlin or have you uh, w- would you ever consider a, a new um a new hero well i would like i would like a change and to do something else but i'm contracted to do six merlin novels so I, I'm, the one i'm working on now is merlin six I haven't quite worked out. Uh, I've got various plot ideas, but I haven't quite put them all together. But um, in any event, that's not what I do anyway. I usually start writing with a few ideas um, and just see where I go. So in Dead in the Water, I have these ideas. Um, uh, one of the things we haven't mentioned is it's involved with there's um, art stolen from Jews before the war, which is circulating. And I had an idea of that. I'd read a um, biography about uh, someone called Kalus Kulbenkin, who was, the, was at that point uh, the richest man in the world. He was known as Mr. 5% because he'd been the person who'd introduced all the major oil companies to the Middle East at the beginning of the century. And he got his 5%. So he was, uh, I read a biography that gave me ideas about the art because he was a massive art collector. And um, so that led to one stream of the story. And then the things we discussed about the American situation was involving the legal situation and 
um, African-American soldiers, that that was another factor. And so I, I, I usually just launch off when I've got these things in my mind. And I have one of the things in mind for the next one, but I need another couple before I can really feel I'm on my way. But to, to go back to your original question, would I like to write different stories? Yes, absolutely. Of course, I'd like to. Um, I wouldn't mind writing a standalone novel. Um, I do have other ideas for historical thrillers. Um, in fact, one of them preceded. Uh, I wrote a sort of couple of chapters of one preceding this, but then I decided to go with Merlin. And that was about a um, sort of Daniel Defoe-like character in um, in uh, late 8th, 17th, sorry, 17th century uh, London. And of course, you know, he was a, a spy, a pamphleteer, a politician, very interesting character. And I thought you know, I could make him into sort of private investigator as well. I mean, you know, someone based on him, not him. But um, so I have that still at the back of my mind. Um, and um, uh, but I also might, might quite like to write something modern. But I haven't worked out what, I would, what it is to do. At the moment, I'm focused on Berlin 6. But yes, I definitely would like to change change up a bit. Although I have also undertaken to my readers who, who are anxious, am I going to take him all the way through to the end of the war? So that would imply another few books yet, um, because he's only in 19, spring 1943 in Merlin 6, so probably needs three books to take him to the end of the war. I'm interested in, in the way you write the novels, though, because I would always assume that um, writers, particularly with lots of plot lines that you have running through your own, sort of a spreadsheet or a map up on a wall with you know diagonal lines going everywhere but it sounds like you've kind of you, your plans come out on the page as you're writing yeah but i, I do do the, the sort of map usually when i'm sort of like uh, third of the way in when i've got everything running and, and, I, and i need to keep tags of where i am so I, yeah I, I yeah i do a sort of um uh, not a spreadsheet but yeah i do i, I do a handwritten map of where I am, and I stick it on a on a, on a post-it. I have it there while I can carry on writing. And of course, you know, you, you forget who your names, your characters as you as you're going along, and then there are characters that repeat from the previous books that you've got to remind yourselves yourself what they do, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So yeah, yes, I have a lot of notes as I'm writing, um, but. Um, I mean, this, the, the, there are often these uh, debates, panel debates at the various crime festivals about whether you're a pantser or a planner. So a pantser is what I am. I go by the seat of my pants. And a planner, uh, I did all that. But I, I, I find that rather boring because I rather like the reader. I, I truly do not know what's happening until close to the end of the book. And I set my plots running, but I don't actually know who did anything, who did what. I mean, I set up the various... Um, suspects, um, but literally, I mean, it's, it's the last, uh, probably the last 50 pages where everything comes home is where I, I know what happens. So meanwhile, I'm in, I'm in suspense as well as any read, as much as any reader. <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. Yeah, that's, that's just rather reassuring, actually. <laughs> yes, well, you know, if I was just writing it and I knew exactly what happened, I'd find it all rather boring. It's like a sort of school exercise or something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, wonderful. Okay, so um, so we've got number six coming out. When's that coming out? Um, I haven't got a publication date yet. It usually takes me two. 
I'm not, I'm not, I'm amazed all these people can churn out a book a year, or even in some cases, I have a couple of friends who do two, two a year. How they manage it, I do not know. I need the time, I, you know, I, I do it the way I do it. Then I you know, usually edit it quite a lot. I mean, the Dead in the Water, when it was the first draft, was 200,000 words. And I edited down to 110, so that's quite a big job. And um, so, uh, yeah, it'll probably come out in, uh, where are we now, 2022, it'll probably come out in late 24, I should think. Fantastic. Well, I, I look forward to that. Um, so, Mark, look, this has been really enjoyable uh, and thanks very much for coming on. Great. It's my pleasure. Thank you very much, Holly, for having me. Now we're going to move on to my top 10 historical films. It'll be going from 10 to 1 and here are a few ground rules. Firstly, my historical films have to be based on an actual event featuring the real people. So that means something like Gladiator, Last of the Mohicans, and The Wind That Shakes the Barley, and The Lies of Others, as great as they are, aren't included. Now I know some of these features real people, but the main characters, Maximus, Hawkeye, Damien and Gerd, are fictional, so they're out. Secondly, I've tried not to be too mainstream. That's a bit of a challenge on some, and there are films that I would have picked, but have elected not to, simply because everyone picks them. So films such as Saving Private Ryan, Zulu, A Bridge Too Far, JFK, Gandhi and The Revenant, to name but a few, as good as they are, I've not included. Now stay with me, just because a film I pick might have subtitles, don't tune out. Each of the films I pick are highly recommended, and not just by me. Third, I'm not limiting it to drama only, and so I have included a couple of documentaries. One of them is a little bit of a cheat, but it's my list, so I can cheat if I like. Finally, they all have to be historically accurate, or at least slightly historically accurate in one example. So that's a no to Lincoln the Vampire Slayer. Right, I'll get on with it. At number 10, Alexander, directed by Oliver Stone. Now, as I keep on saying, this is my list, and so I've picked a film of my favourite historical figure, Alexander the Great, played by Colin Farrell. It was panned critically at the time of release in 2004, but what I will say is that it's historically accurate, as much as a film can be in two or three hours when covering such a life. The scene of the Battle of Galgamela is as realistic as any, and the historical advisor was Robin Lane Fox, who wrote a brilliant biography of Alexander. Try to suspend disbelief when you see Angelina Jolie as Olympias, Alexander's mother, and she's only 11 months older than Colin Farrell. Number 9. La Reine Margot, directed by Patrice Charot. This is the one that is only slightly historically accurate, but only the French can pack in as much blood, symbolism and religious violence as is possible in a film which was made in 1994. Isabel Adjani is the title character as Margaret of Valois. It's the late 16th century and France is about to erupt in bloodletting between Catholic and Protestant, culminating in the St. Bartholomew Day Massacre of 1572. It stars so many great French actors, including Daniel Otoy and Jean-Hugues Anglade. At number eight, Breaker Morant, directed by Bruce Beresford. Now, I was mulling over this. It was either this or Gallipoli, directed by Peter Weir. More people have probably heard of Gallipoli, so it's this film, also Australian, that got my vote. Made it around the same time as Weir's, this is based on a court-martial during the Boer War in South Africa, when 
Australian soldiers were prosecuted in one of the earliest instances of a war crimes trial during a conflict that also saw an early example of a concentration camp. It stars Edward Woodward and Brian Brown and some light relief is provided by spotting cast members of Neighbours and Home and Away. Number 7. Missing, directed by Costa Grava and starring Jet Lemon and Sissy Spacek. Made in 1982, it depicts the Chilean coup of 1973 when a democratically elected left-wing government was overthrown by the military junta of Augusto Pinochet. Spacek plays the wife of Charles Horman, who goes missing early on, and she, alongside Lemon as her father-in-law, tried to wade their way through bureaucracy and lying from the American embassy in Santiago. Increasingly, they learn of American involvement, and there are some horrific scenes. Lemon and Spacek are fantastic as their bond grows throughout the film. An honourable mention also goes to Oliver Stone's Salvador, another film showing downright criminal American involvement in another country's troubles. Number six, Katyn, directed by Andrzej Vajda. The war in Ukraine has shown Russian army atrocities here in 2022, but they've done it before and it's difficult to find a more shameful event than Katyn, when, in 1940, around 22,000 Polish officers and others were murdered. Authorised by Stalin, carried out by the NKVD, the events are depicted through the eyes of the mothers, wives and daughters of the victims. The bodies were discovered by the Nazis, and so of course both regimes blamed each other. So we're now into the top five. As a reminder, at 10, we have Alexander, number 9, Lorraine Margot, number 8, Breaker Morant, 7, Missing, and number 6, Katine. Culloden, directed by Peter Watkins. This is such a strange but brilliant film, depicting the battle which, in 1746, effectively put an end to Celtic life in Scotland, to quote the great historian Norman Davis. It was the final confrontation of the Jacobite uprising which began a year earlier and the army of Bonnie Prince Charlie is comprehensively defeated by the Duke of Cumberland who was the youngest son of George II, friend of the show. It was made in 1964 and is only 69 minutes long. It's made in a docudrama style and participants of the battle are interviewed prior to the clash. Filmed in black and white, watching it feels like being transported back to the 18th century. At number four, the first documentary film of the top ten, One Day in September, directed by Kevin MacDonald. This was made in 1999 and describes the terrorist attack on the Israeli athletes at the Munich Olympics in 1972. Narrated by Michael Douglas and with a brilliant soundtrack, I watched this open-mouthed at the brutality of the terrorists, the bravery of the athletes and the indifference and downright incompetence of their German hosts. It's an extraordinary story that is tragic, though the nobility of the victim's relative stays with you, as well as the shocking behaviour of the International Olympic Committee. Steven Spielberg later depicted the f attack in his film Munich, but you really do need to watch this. Number three, the second documentary, and this is my cheat, The Civil War, directed by the great documentary maker Ken Burns. Technically not a film, it's a nine-part series, each episode at least one hour, with the longest at one hour 40 minutes. The theme song is haunting, and a number of great Hollywood actors provide the voiceovers. 
But Burns guides us through the causes, political machinations and the situation both north and south as the Confederacy and Union descend into a conflict that America is still dealing with today. It's all here. John Brown's raid on Harper's Ferry, acclaimed historians, Gettysburg, Lincoln, Lee and of course slavery and its repercussions. Once you've watched this, you'll have learnt a lot about the USA and you'll want to watch it again. At number two, The Battle of Algiers by Guillo Pontecorvo, a film of the colonial war between French occupiers and Algerian rebels. It's a brilliant depiction of how a country, in this case France, cannot win a war if it does not have a clear political objective. The Battle of Algiers was only released in 1966, four years after the Algerian war ended. Not only is the movie absolutely spellbinding, starring veterans of the conflict, it's all but also been held up as an example to governments who have to deal with urban insurrections. The French go in hard and nasty actions are carried out by both sides. It was banned in France for five years. I recommend watching this and then The Day of the Jackal as a double bill. And now we're at number one. We've had French, American, British, Australian and Greek films, but here... My number one historical film is Downfall, directed by Oliver Hirschbergel and starring Bruno Gantz. It's the depiction of the final few days of Adolf Hitler. Now, I'm sure you've heard of it, and some of you have probably seen it, and if you haven't, you've definitely seen the parodies. The claustrophobic feeling of being in the underground bunker whilst the German and Russian armies are fighting above ground is vividly depicted. There are particularly creepy performances as the leadership of the Nazis slowly realise they've come to the end of the road. It's seen through the eyes of Traudel Jung, Hitler's secretary, and the battle for Berlin culminates in an orgy of suicides. It won a shed load of awards, most notably Best Foreign Language Film at the Oscars. If you haven't seen it, watch it. If you have, watch it again. Now there you have it. I hope that wasn't too boring. Have a look at links in the show notes. If you have any comments or want to recommend your own movies, you can get hold of me. I'm on the Twitter at OllieWCQ or email history at aspectsofhistory.com. I put in a couple of links for real history, which is where historian Alex von Tunzelman goes through films that I've mentioned and gives her historical perspective, which I do recommend. I don't always agree with her, but I do recommend reading through. Coming up, I've got the Partition of India. It's the 75th anniversary on the 15th of August, and I discuss this momentous event with Barney White Spunner, author of the book on the independence of India and the creation of Pakistan. Unfortunately, no jokes with this one. Not a very happy story. Thank you, and good night.